What's really good, everybody? You're listening to the Post Bougie Podcast. I'm GD. No Taryn this week. She is in Detroit unpacking and getting settled in, so you are stuck with me. But we have a really, really dope show for y'all this week. Our guest, Nicole Hannah-Jones of the New York Times Magazine, she is the shit. Just recently, a couple weeks ago, This American Life aired a two-part episode called The Problem We All Live With. And it was mostly based on Nicole's reporting out of Ferguson. Let me just back up a little bit to set this all up. Just a few months before Michael Brown was shot and killed a year ago, actually a year ago this month, he graduated from a high school called Normandy High. And Normandy is in terrible shape. There are 250 high schools in the state of Missouri. Normandy is ranked 250th. Normandy was doing so badly that it lost its accreditation, something that's never, ever happened before in the state of Missouri. Nicole followed what happened when a bunch of folks realized there was a little-used law that said the kids from failing districts could go to school in much better districts, and the failing district would then have to foot the bill for them to do so. So about a 1,000 kids from the now unaccredited, mostly black Normandy High School tried to use that law to go to the much better and overwhelmingly white Francis Howe High School, which is in a nearby town called St. Charles. As you might imagine, things got really ugly really quickly. Everyone is talking about it. You should really give it a listen if you haven't already. Nicole's also a friend, and so we managed to steal a few minutes to talk about this at the National Association of Black Journalists Convention. And I apologize to y'all. We couldn't really find a quiet place to talk, so that noise you're going to hear in the background is people all amped because they're buying Prince tickets. It's a story for another time. But here's my conversation with Nicole. And I started this conversation just by asking her about Nidra Martin. So Nidra's daughter, Mario, was a star student at Normandy High School, and she made the jump to Francis Howell. So I found um, Nidra Martin and Maria through the lawyer who, um, when the state of Missouri took over the Normandy schools and um, said that this district now had some special made-up accreditation status and forced the Normandy kids to go back to their school, a lawyer there decided he was going to sue on behalf of the students and Nidra Martin was one of the early plaintiffs on the case. So I contacted the lawyer and asked him for several parents who were plaintiffs, um, and talked to several. And um, Nidra stood out just for a couple of reasons. She was very concerned about her own daughter, but also very concerned about other kids. Um, she had a great relationship with her daughter. She also had an older student. So thinking of wanting to talk to the child, of course, it's much easier to interview an older child than, say, a fourth grader. There's the scene in the piece where they go to the public meeting held at Francis Howell. Uh, Nidra knew that it was going to be ugly. There had already been newspaper stories and, and things like that. And she said she contemplated whether or not to take her daughter to the meeting. But she decided her daughter needed to know what she was getting herself into and how the world was. So she did. Because we don't want the, the different areas, I'm going to probably be very kind, coming across on our side of the bridge, bringing with it everything that we're fighting today against. A mother named Beth Sarami approaches the microphone. This is what I want to know from you. In one month, I send my three small children to you, and I want to know, is there going to be metal detectors? Because I, wa- I want to be clear. I- I'm no expert. I'm not you guys. I'm, I'm, I don't have an accreditation, but I've read. I've read and I've read and I've read. So we're not talking about the Normandy School District losing their accreditation because of their buildings or their structures or their teachers. We are talking about violent behavior that is coming in with my first grader, my third grader, and my middle schooler that I'm very worried about. And I want to know, you have no choice like me, I want to know where the metal detectors are going to be, and I want to know where your drug-sniffing dogs are going to be. And I want, this is what I want, 
I want the same security that Normandy gets when they walk through their school door. And I want it here. And I want it, and I want that security before my children walk into Francis Howell. Because I shopped for a school district. I deserve to not have to worry about my children getting stabbed or taking a drug or getting robbed because that's the issue. To be clear, Normandy did not lose its accreditation because of violence. Coming off of that meeting, Maria then, of course, knew that there was going to be hostility. And as she says in the piece, she just focused on the kids and just was like, the parents aren't going to be in the meeting. I'm going to go to this school and I'm just going to focus on the kids. And I didn't actually ask her this, and I'm not sure why, but it may have been there were only a couple of people at that meeting who spoke up for the Normandy kids who were not black. There were a couple of black parents who spoke up for Normandy kids, and those were students. Mm -hmm. So at that meeting, um, she actually heard students saying, why wouldn't we welcome them, chastising the adults. And mm -hmm. actually, some of those students who were like white Francis House students were heckled down by the parents in that auditorium. Wow. Um, so I think maybe that gave her some confidence to believe that even though the parents uh, were very vitriolic, that once she got to the school, that her classmates would not be. I mean, we tend to think of these things like past now, um, and it could be like they, they haven't grown into their racism yet. But like, why do you think that they were a lot less hostile to the idea of the Normandy kids coming to, to the school? Yeah, I think... I mean, what you're hearing in Normandy are a lot of racial fears and fears tied to property values and how hard I've worked to deserve these good public schools. And I don't want to turn them over to people whose parents did not work as hard. And I just don't think that children have those concerns. Children are like, oh, it's going to be some other kids in the class with me. They're not vested in the same way and the same sort of stuff. Like they're not vested in like the value of the homes and the. Yeah, I mean, what the white parents are talking about is like a barricading mentality. I mean, they moved out intentionally to a very white suburb that is ringing a very black city. So they have made intentional decisions about who they wanted in their community, who they wanted their kids to go to school with, and. The white children are just there, but they didn't make these decisions. So the white parents are trying to guard something that they have sought out. And I don't think that the kids were. I don't think that it's because kids, I, I mean, we hear all the time that this generation is less racist. and That's bullshit. Right. Yeah. That's not true. Yeah. And that's the same thing that everyone said right at the civil rights movement. Was that we just have to wait for the older generation to die out. Well, they, you know, they did. And they were just replaced. So I don't think that that's it. But I just think that what you, they're talking about education, the parents are, but they're talking really about guarding a privilege. And I don't think the the kids are just invested in that yet. Mm -hmm. Yet. yet. <laughs> so the stuff you, you, that you tend to report on is always big, like macro level thorny stuff. And you make this really, really, really compelling, like almost unimpeachable argument that the thing that works is integration, like school integration for, you know, having the resource gap. But there's no political momentum around it. Okay, so then the next thing is, like, housing segregation. There's no political momentum around making it done. That, so, like, these are things we know what the problems are. We sort of know what the solutions to them are. We all know what it is, you know what I mean? And, but, like, we can't actually do anything about those things. We're not going to do anything about right. those things. How do you feel about that? I mean, does, that, does it make you feel like you're like Cassandra or, like, you know, like, you're telling, like, this is... You know, the fall of the empire, this is like the thing is going to kill us all. Or So. Like, are you optimistic? I mean, I'm no, optimistic. no. I mean, I, I always get, I do a lot of 
panels and speaking engagements. And at the end, after I have like laid out this just incredibly um, adaptable racist, racist system that is harming generations of black kids, people want me to give them hope. <laughs> um, and I understand it because you don't want to believe that it's intractable, but it is. And it's intractable because we have absolutely no will to do anything about it. And I think a lot about like so a lot of the criticism that Tanahazi has been bombarded with this year about, about like, not being hopeful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm like, I, you can't cover the stuff the way that we do, mm-hmm. which is with a very long eye of history with all of that historical context um, and feel a lot of hope mm-hmm. on a global level. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel hope in my own life, sure, of course. Sure. I mean, right, right. that's how you keep going. <laughs> right. And I feel hope that I can give my daughter a good life, but largely, I I know, I think the fact that the worst inequality, the worst segregation in housing and school is in the most progressive parts of the country should tell you how hopeless this is. That even the people, the people who profess to care about these issues the most are, you know, vanguarding the worst inequality. Yeah. You always hear about uh, the Raleigh School District. Which right. was like the model of like successful integration and how you have, you had Northeastern liberals who moved down to Raleigh for like a better pace of life and you know, better, better schools or whatever. They came down there and they were the people who like led the dismantling. Yeah. Charlotte was the first Supreme Court busing case and they had phenomenal success. And it was Northeastern white folks who came down to work in the banking industry who, who were not used to sending their kids to school with lots of black kids. Mm-hmm. And we're used to being able to buy into a neighborhood and buy into a school. And, of course, what busing does is it breaks up that housing where you might buy in this neighborhood, but that doesn't mean you're going to be going to school in that neighborhood. And they they took it down. And the same thing happened in Wake County. The Wake County is still holding on to it. So, yeah, it's absolutely we, we like to pretend that this is some problem of, like, backwards white people in the South. But it's not. Housing, the some of the most violent reaction to busing, of course, was, like, Boston. Right. So I think that when people criticize like Tanahazi or any of us for not being optimistic, I think it shows that the expectations on how we are supposed to live are not the same as what they are for white folk. Like to say like, well, y'all are doing better, but we're not mm-hmm. the same. It's not right. good enough. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of my point. Like in the piece, it's like you're talking about turning around a school, which means, you know, 30 percent of kids will pass tests instead of 10%. Mm-hmm. I want to cuss. I, wanna, I mean, <laughs> Go over safe space. I'm saying, how the fuck is that good enough when all the rest of these kids are literally, literally being robbed of a basic education? And so that we somehow should be hopeful because, you know, a handful of us have managed to, despite every obstacle, get something is ridiculous. And, and so the critique of Ta-Nehisi when he's like, dude, look at history and look where we are right now. Right. And it's hard to have optimism. Um, I mean, Frederick Douglass was free. That mm-hmm. didn't mean every person could be free. Mm-hmm. Every enslaved person. So, so no, I'm not optimistic. You arrived at that honestly. Pessimism, it seems like the reasonable conclusion. Yes. To. That's um, the thing. I think people want to feel like you're make like that's somehow the emotional. Mm-hmm. That's your emotional reaction, and it's not like it's actually very like unemotional. Yeah, absolutely. If it's if it's just a clear understanding of the facts, mm-hmm. and I think like in Tanahazi's book, he talks about like that famous King quote, 
Well, King borrowed it from somebody else. But anyway, about the arc of justice bending towards. Or the arc of the universe, sorry, bending towards justice. And basically he's like, no. Like, Mm -hmm. and he's right. Like, the systems just change. They, they adapt, but they maintain. Can you, you talked a little bit in the, in the This American Life piece about what it was like to be bust. You didn't know you were being bust because it was, you know, you were a kid. But like, when did you realize that you were like basically a guinea pig in this experiment? How many people, first of all, you grew up in Iowa. Yes. Right. So how many black people are there in Iowa? I mean, I think Iowa now is like 3% black. Okay. But my hometown was is like 15% black. It's the blackest city in the state. Which is like a very high bar, clearly. Well, when the state is 3% <laughs> right, right. and 15% is the blackest, no. But that's that's more black than our country as a whole. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, so I grew up in a black community that had segregated black schools. Mm-hmm. Um, part of the migration that went from Mississippi to Chicago. Um, so I didn't realize that I, I started getting bust in second grade and I didn't realize it was a busing program for integration until I was grown because no one ever, like my parents never talked to me about, about that. I just knew there was a bus that went and picked up all black people on my side of town (laughs) and we rolled to the other school, but I didn't know how like school districts worked. I didn't know about attendance zones and neighborhood attendance zones. And I think this is always like the, when we talk about there's no will to integrate, the will is not really coming from black folks or white folks because white people don't need integration and um, don't particularly want it unless it's a bonus. And black people need it in order to get equal access, but we bore the brunt of all of it. Mm. I mean, our schools were shut down, our principals and uh, teachers were laid off. We were the ones who had to leave our communities and go to other schools. The beauty of what happened in Charlotte was that court made sure that the the, the burden was on white and black students. Mm-hmm. White students were bussing into black schools, black students were bussing into white schools, but that rarely happened. Mm-hmm. So we always bore the burden. And so a lot of black people are like, we don't want to do that anymore. Right. I think I've heard people articulate that before, but I think it was one of the things that was most compelling about the American Life Story was like you saw how much that it was going to be on the kids, like the black kids who were going to be going to Francis Howell, like were going to be the kids who were going to be dealing with. I mean, one parent basically says like, what if we moved out to school time, um, so that you know they won't get to school in time and they just decide not to come anymore. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We we have to do this. We have to follow the laws. We don't have to like it, and we don't have to make it easy. Has anyone considered changing our school start times, moving start times up 20 minutes, maybe 40 minutes, making it a little less appealing? Like, those kids have to wake up early in the morning and go a couple times over. And those kids are the ones who are like have to deal with the actual like, physical toll. Yep. Sleeping too little, and you know you can't. How integrated can you be if you can't go to a school and like join the? extracurricular activities because you have to get on the bus to go back to your, your own That's town, right. you know I mean? Like, it seems like... Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's so many costs on black kids. Um, there's the psychic cost. Do you feel like you, you sort of accrued any sort of psychic burdens from being bus that way? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it was, one, it was a double because we were, like, really working class, mm-hmm. and I was bus to, like, the richest elementary school in the city, and so there was, like, Class issues and race issues, it was very hard. I was lucky. I was um, gifted, so I tested really well. I was a great student, so it was probably in some ways easier on me than other kids because um, I was kind of 
I think they probably consider me a, a bit of an exception. Mm. But, so you were like tracked into the right classes. Yeah, and, yeah. So I never had to fight to like get access to yeah. the best courses and, and, and all of that. But it was hard. You never fit in. It wasn't your school. It was very clear it wasn't your school. Um, your friendships across racial lines had borders and the borders were where the white people lived because they were never going to come to where you lived. And as I got older, um, I basically just stopped trying. I cut off all those friendships and all of my friendships were mostly people from my neighborhood who weren't going to be afraid and whose parents weren't going to be afraid for them to hang out with me at my own house. So there were a lot of costs. And of course, the benefit was I got the best public education that the city offered. But our high school also had like a ton of tracking. I was always, our high school was 20% black, but I was always one of a handful of kids. In the Francis Hall, in the Normandy story, so a thousand kids left, 3,000 kids did not. And for various reasons. And I think the way it gets painted, so one, the, the problem is like, if, if we're going to have like very different schools that are private and you can pay for it, I can't, it's hard for me to make an argument against that. I mean, I could and I would, but you know, people can do what they want with what their money can buy. Mm-hmm. We're talking about public schools mm-hmm. and the notion that because you have acquired a certain amount of wealth that you are deserving of good public schools and that other kids should be blocked from that because they can't, it's, it should be outrageous. It should be considered like anti-American mm-hmm. because the foundation of our country and why we were able to prosper was adequate public education for all. The parents were able to come out and then we paint them as angels or not angels, but like the these, ones who were like these are the, right. These are the good parents mm-hmm. because they were willing to do what they needed to do. So, okay, their kids actually deserve a good education, but all those kids who back, they don't deserve it because obviously their parents don't care and they don't want anything better for themselves. That one, that's like my concern about the piece is I hope that that is not the message that people get. There's lots of reasons why parents choose not to bust their kids. It's hard on their kids. It's hard on families. If you're working the type of job, this is a very poor district that is an hourly wage job, and your kid is in school 30 miles away and something happens, you can't just get to that school. A lot of parents don't want their kids to be that far away from them. A lot of parents don't want their kids to be out of the community. Um, black folks like community schools just like white folks do. It's just, unfortunately, the we are forced right. to be bussed out of our communities to get access to adequate education. But black people want neighborhood schools. They want to send their kids to school close by. So there are lots of reasons why parents don't go. And I don't think the reason is ever that parents don't want their kids to get a good education. But that's how it's often painted. And I think that that is it's frustrating because I don't see a time in this country where black kids will ever get an equal education. And that's very depressing. When you ask the, that cat, is there any way that 2015 that a black kid can get an equal education anywhere in Missouri where that can happen? That pause. That pause said everything. So then knowing that, knowing that in these high poverty segregated districts, the students aren't doing well. Is it possible for a black child in Missouri to get an equal education? Mm. Wow, what a great question. The answer right now, I, I really don't know. Because of the way you constructed the whole story, by the time you get there, I mean, he hasn't heard this whole story, right? right? By the time you get there in the story that we're listening to, this is like how great recorded argument sounds. Because 
it didn't matter what he said. Right. You there was knew like the no answer. conclusion he could come, that you could have come to like as a reasonable person. And even his response was like this, like super political, like, well, you know, it's a, it's a good question. I was like, bruh, like, you know what I mean? And I don't know. Right. Exactly. Right. Which is pretty telling. Right. I mean, it's not an honest answer because the honest answer would be no, no right. but mm-hmm. it's also not what one would expect. Mm-hmm. You know, I, when I first started doing this, I tapped around the race, like the issue of race, like a lot of journalists do. Why? I mean, you I mean think because, this story. No, not this story. Like you mean being a journalist. Being a journalist, mm-hmm. because I think like that's so funny because I think of you as like a you know, as a calm race man. The thing. Oh no no no! Me. I'm saying as a young reporter, I did not. I would not have probably asked that question mm-hmm. of a school official. I would have asked about the numbers and the statistics and why is it like this and why didn't you do that? But I wouldn't have directly asked that question. And is it just like you just are more confident now? Or do you just feel like is, has the conversation changed? Like what what made you feel like you could ask that question now? I think we are taught as journalists even to be very careful around that, uh, the issue of race and are you accusing someone, like you never accuse anyone of being racist or a policy as being racist. You will say like racially skewed or racially disparate or, you know, it's like we can never like directly say it mm-hmm. or that shows a bias. Mm-hmm. And I finally was like, no, like, it, it is what it is. Like, the evidence is clear. So I just started asking, like, the question so directly. And what's funny is people are not used to being asked directly about race. And you get great, honest answers because they're not, it's not a question they're prepared for because we don't talk and ask the direct question. So I actually asked that question at same, when I did the written piece first, I asked that same question of Chris Castro, who at the time was the head of the Missouri Department of Education. Her answer was no. I mean, she was troubled. Like she's, she's the one who set in to motion all of Normandy. And I think she really had the, she really, she didn't know what the consequences would be, but she was like, we just can't keep letting these urban districts fail these kids. Mm-hmm. So I think she was trying to do the right thing in a very fucked up system. Like mm-hmm. one person can't fix all that needs to be fixed. So when I asked her that directly, she said no, which I was like mad props. But I'm also like, you know, the Department of um, Ed's Office of Civil Rights needs to be like found also. <laughs> like you just as head of the State Department of Education said that black kids are not getting equal education. I also think part of it was so, okay, it's so, a direct question that people are not used to answering and people give you really non-dishonest answers because they're not prepared for them. Right. Mm-hmm. And we should do that more often. So you said the Department of Ed's Civil Rights Division should get involved. What could they What could they do? I mean, if you gave them the authority and said, like, go ahead, would it be like just a report? Would they put them under like some kind of close scrutiny or something like that? Okay. So there's what could the DOJ do or what would the DOJ what, do? Both. I mean, not DOJ. I'm talking DOJ. about Office of Civil Rights, DOE. Yeah. The, the biggest tool that the federal government has is federal funding. Mm-hmm. And of course, the 1964 Civil Rights Act says that they can strip funds from school districts and anyone else who receives federal funds for discriminating. And what's often left out of the story of Brown is like, that's actually what really started getting districts to start voluntarily implementing desegregation was right after the Civil Rights Act was passed, the government also passed the Secondary Education, Secondary and Elementary Education Act and expanded federal funding to schools by $1 billion. And they were like, you're not going to get this money. And States wanted that money. So they started acting like yeah, right Yeah, but it was serious. Like, it literally was started cutting off funds. Mm-hmm. Um, and it worked. So what 
the feds could do is say to a school district or a state that we're going to cut your funds off and actually do it. But that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. I don't know when the last time the feds have cut off funding to anyone for violating the Civil Rights Act. Based on years of reporting, we both know there's just no will to do it. Mm -hmm. Period. Mm -hmm. Um, There's no will to do strong enforcement of civil rights at all. The only place it's doing even a decent amount would be the EEOC. Mm -hmm. Um, So the thing about housing and schools is white liberals don't really want it either. So the Fair Housing Act was the last of the civil rights legislation to be passed because it was considered the Northern Civil Rights Act because this was not just going to punish the South. Mm -hmm. It was going to force the North to deal with its form of segregation, which was in housing. Um, They don't want it. reported extensively, like, sort of going unenforced. Yeah, so immediately, even after passing the act, uh, the government decided it wasn't going to force it. The same thing with, there was this brief, I mean, schools are unusual because there was this very brief period where all three bodies of the federal government were aligned. The courts were ruling and forcing real desegregation. The president, uh, the office of the president was actually doing the enforcement. And you had Congress that was backing up the enforcement and also, like, passing uh, civil rights law. That's only happened, like, that's the only time that ever happened. Um, But that lasted, it was very fleeting. Mm-hmm. I mean, whenever less we than talk about integration, it seems like there's there's always I mean, even your reporting um, from Alabama was like about like how there was like this sweet spot, right? There was this period in which like all the things that people said they wanted sort of like came into being, but it was like a very tenuous thing because then white people left, right? Or yeah. white people went to the other side of Tuscaloosa and just very quickly became like this is a black school, Central is a black school again. Yeah, it seems like it's always been a very tenuous thing. It's like in real life, it has never sort of been sustained for no. any extended period of time. No, and I think that's. That goes back to that, again, like, why are you pessimistic or not hopeful about it? Mm-hmm. And, again, if you are students of history, like we are, then you just, you see, you see how it happens. I mean, slavery ends. You have a brief period of Reconstruction where you have enough people in Congress who are saying, okay, we're going to try to make this right. And then immediately yeah. it ends mm-hmm. and we, we get Jim Crow, mm-hmm. right? And so it that. doesn't go away it adapts Mm -hmm. and there's a little rough period while you know the people the nation figures out how to make it adapt and we see some forward progress and then the adaptation happens and the same thing happens after the 60s you have all of this turmoil literally um they believe that the nation was on the brink of revolution. Like that was the literal fear that led to the Fair Housing Act being passed. Mm-hmm. Was a hundred cities were on fire. On fire. It was. It's, it's one of those things that always should inform our conversations about rights and stuff. Yes. Right? Because you are someone like finance is doing any good and blah, blah blah. But like literally, the Fair Housing Act comes out of you know Newark and and Philly and you know and Washington. Detroit, all D.C. I mean, while they're signing. The Fair Housing Act, the Capitol is burning yeah. and they're being guarded by the National Guard. Right, right. So, but then what happens? Nixon then runs on the Southern strategy mm-hmm. and immediately says, we're going to stop enforcing integration and housing and I want to end busing. Mm-hmm. So then we revert and the system adapts. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now we can just pretend that because the laws are not forcing the segregation anymore, that we have no need to do anything about right. it. This is like the natural order of things. Like this, the water is finding its level. This is why it's so hard to like when people want to think that this is not an issue of racism. And I'm never talking about individual racism because individual racism on its own does not sort of, create this system. Matter, right? it, doesn't, right. it doesn't 
maintain the system. Mm -hmm. um, though, of course, an individual who owns apartments and is denying housing right. can affect you. Sure. But again, like that, I, I feel like we focus too much on the individual and, and that that's not actually helpful. But I think there's just, there, there's not a, w a willingness to do what needs to be done. I mean, when you think about slavery, the only people that got reparations were slave owners. Mm -hmm. Like, it shouldn't blow my mind, mm -hmm. but it blows your mind to think that the only people who got paid out of that were the people who lost their property. Mm -hmm. And it kind of sums up that. At all. Like, I, don't, you, I don't know if you get these comments from people who are like, we've done reparations, y'all got welfare, yeah, Medicaid, and you're like, that. obviously that's ridiculous, but it's also <laughs> ridiculous because these are all racialized programs Absolutely. that we were largely left out of. Mm -hmm. right? yeah, so, all those programs were made for white people. Yes, I mean, when you look at Social Security, there's a reason why agricultural workers mm -hmm. and uh, domestics were not included under because Social Security. That's what we in, did. Yeah, in the South, yeah. Mm -hmm. He needed some um, support in the Senate to pass it, and he knew that he couldn't get it if, that, if those groups were included. Right, and the reason, the whole reason the South had so much power was because its black population was disenfranchised, so it was a one-party mm -hmm. region, mm -hmm. which meant people did not get unelected, and so they were heading up every committee. They just had outsized power, which is partially what the Civil War ended up being about, was slavery allowed them to have outsized power. It, it seemed really moderate to me. It's like... In a, an America in which we were all sort of playing with the same resources is actually not America. It would be some kind of post-America. It was some, some other society yes. that came out of America, but it almost could not be America. Like, it doesn't seem like something we can't do as our country is currently constituted. And that doesn't no. seem, like, radical to me. It just seems like just sort of, like, looking at what it is, you know? It's funny because the racial hierarchy in america is foundational to our like our, before we had a country we had this was established it is built into everything in our country but we are not taught that we don't understand that we don't want to know that i mean you see the stuff with like texas and like the college boards where we need to like make our country seem like it wasn't so racist um which means lying as opposed to just arguing to to, to get, tell the truth like the true history so because of that we, we believe we can be cured of this thing, but you can't be cured of something that is foundational, where it's in the Constitution, it's in the Declaration of Independence, at least it was, until Jefferson had to take it out in order to get, um, it, to get them to sign the Declaration of Independence. I mean, I went to Philadelphia. I'd never been to a Liberty Bell. Right. Mm -hmm. Which one? It's like small as hell. It is. It. In my head, it was big. I was like, that's it? Um, <laughs> when you actually go to the Liberty Bell, the line to get in forces you to go through this whole exhibit on slavery. Mm -hmm. And then when you go into the actual building, then there's even more on slavery. Like the whole thing was about slavery, which surprised me. And it also surprised the white people who were in line. <laughs> because they were, they were pissed. Mm -hmm. I heard this man behind me like constantly muttering to his wife that he did not understand why he was being forced to go through this thing on slavery when all he wanted to do was see the Liberty Bell. Because all he wanted to see was the glory mm -hmm. of what this meant about American exceptionalism. And we hold that cracked mirror up to our country constantly. We are like, we are, as Langston Hughes said, we're the darker brother. Like, we're standing off to the side with the shame finger, constantly reminding this country that it's, it's not mm -hmm. that. And that the perfection of democracy has largely been driven by us mm -hmm. and our struggle. So I think when you think of that, like, I'm like, you're literally pissed 
that this thing it's true. that was a symbol of abolition is forcing you to deal with slavery because you just want to come and feel good mm-hmm. um, about the country. And I think that's the issue. Is we, we, we will not deal with it head on. I don't know that we can unless there's some massive redistribution of wealth and resources. Um, I don't know how that we can. And I think that's where the work is very depressing and hard because you're writing about things that you fully know Can't change. will not change. But then, what I always say is, I'm not going to let you be comfortable, though. So, no, I do not expect that suddenly Normandy, like, the shit's going to get right in Normandy or anywhere else. It might get better. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're not slaves. Right, absolutely. Right, right, right. <laughs> so, it's not that, which is why the whole, though that argument also bothers me as if somehow, like, the fact that we're not slaves means we should be okay mm, and contented and mm-hmm. thankful. But at the same time, I'm like, I I went down and spent, you know, a year in Tuscaloosa and it looks just like it did when I left. But I'm not going to let you just pretend that this shit is not happening. And I think that's, that is the only thing that can motivate me at this point because I don't have a great expectation of, of change. Um, but that you would not be able to just pretend that that this country is not doing and allowing what it's doing. And um, my next work will be out of the North because I certainly am tired of um, progressives, white progressives in all of these Northern cities pretending like this is not their problem. Like they they are not playing a role in this. Our theme music is Nick's Groove by the Foreign Exchange. Shout out to our podcast producers, Channing Kennedy and John Ketchum. Holler at us. Follow Post Bougie on Twitter at P-O-S-T-B-O-U-R-G-I-E and like us on Facebook. <laughs>